0: Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast,
1: where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature.
0: Coming to you from the high Allegheny Plateau in central New York,
1: we are your hosts, A.C. Stobel
0: and Isaac Hill. Episode 69, The Delightful Phyllis D. Light. Phyllis is a traditional Southern Appalachian folk herbalist. She's a little bit of a legend, and this is a lot of fun. We talk about Southern folk medicine, about growing up in Alabama and in a family of herbalists and midwives that goes back to at least the Civil War, about her amazingly diverse bioregion, about the amazing versatility of decoctions, about how traditional healers would be able to make many different remedies from one plant based on how long you boil it down, and how you can boil down stuff like Molin and Queen Anne's lace, and stuff that you wouldn't think that you should decoct, and about wild yam, which really should be dried and decocted according to Southern folk medicine. Phyllis also shares stories about some of the legendary herbalists that she studied with, like Tommy Bass. And she gives us some good tips on books, like Dr. Christopher's herbal. We had a very delightful conversation with Phyllis. We went about two hours, so I took the second half and put that up for the patrons. and in part two, we talk about daughter, about some other crucial medicines, about energetics, or as she likes to say, the qualities of plants, and vitalism, and a lot of other really excellent stuff. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to hear part two, go on over to patreon.com plantcunning plant cunning. Okay. So today on the plant cutting podcast, we have, we have Phyllis delight. Uh, how are you today, Phyllis?
2: I'm doing good. How are y'all? Very good.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a warm day for central New York in, uh, February. It's like almost 40. So that's, that's, that's nice.
2: (laughs) And it's 60 in Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's
0: that's even nicer. Mm. That's probably a really good time of the year, uh, for Alabama. I guess it, does it get really hot in the summer?
2: Um, typically it does get really hot in the summer but the last couple of summers it's been really weird like last summer I didn't have to turn my air conditioning on uh, except for a couple of days which is a real first but I know friends up in Minnesota and New York and up in the northeast they were like it's like a heat wave up here and it just felt like everything reversed last last couple of years so we only got like 92 or 93, which is normally we're like 100, 101, 102. Mm. Um, So it was a big difference last year. It was like we had a really extended late spring, uh, a really early fall, lots and lots of plants. Oh, my God. Plants were, I'm in a semi-tropical area. I'm in North Alabama, the end of the Appalachians, um, but it's classified semi-tropical. Oh. So if you don't mow your yard, weed your garden, within two or three days, the plants are literally taking over. Mm-hmm. And it's not just cudsy that grows a foot a day. It's <laughs> everything that grows a foot a day.
1: The gardening is more about just maintaining in the life. Oh, uh, yeah. Huh.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, you go, I just weeded this two <laughs> days ago and these things, you know grass is already coming up mm-hmm. um so everything grows here really quick and it's um we have lots of rain typically we usually get about anywhere from 60 to 80 inches a year nice yeah um you know excluding those special el nino drought years right. um right um so you know it really is a plant paradise and as a matter of fact alabama i think is listed as number 4 maybe number five in the nation for biodiversity. Yeah. Right. So I'm really fortunate where I live. It's the foothills of the Appalachians. So it's elevation and slightly mountainous. And a lot of the plants that grow, you know, from Pennsylvania on down um, that don't require super cold, Um, They grow here, but I'm also about um, four and a half hours away from the Gulf Coast. So in between me and the Gulf Coast is the the, um, prairie, um, which we call the black belt, because it's prairie with this really rich, deep black dirt. And um, it's where Echinacea grows wild and the buffaloes roamed back in the day. Um, So there's all of those plants um, that grow there, totally different, right? So there I've got Rattlesnake Master and Fairy Wand. Uh, Wait, Fairy Wand is also called uh, False Unicorn. So, right, Um, so in the woods and in the prairies around that area. And then a little further down, we've got the bog plants um, Mm -hmm. because the uh, Mobile River Basin is considered the most biodiverse river in the United States. Wow. It's actually, they call it the little Amazon Mm -hmm. because there's so much biodiversity and um, more bog plants, more sundews, more carnivorous plants. And and then a little, like an hour away from that, we're on the Gulf and all the Gulf plants. So if I just stayed in Alabama, I would never run out of plants, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a- I, and I will never discover them all mm-hmm. either, right? There's just too many. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and it's interesting to hear that it is
1: like a, considered a tropical re- region because yeah. or almost tropical. Because when I was... When I visited Alabama, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised by how much it felt like the Northeast in certain ways, like all of the a lot of familiar trees and plants. I was there in the springtime, and it felt like Northeast in the summertime. So, um,
2: what part of Alabama were you in? I was in the northern part. I forget. Yeah, that's the edge of the Appalachians. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. with the elevation the mountains up around mentone and northeast alabama yeah um yeah just south of chattanooga so the mountains that run through chattanooga like lookout mountain go all the way into alabama
0: and then, they, so, then those mountains run all the way up to here
2: yeah we're at the. that's northeast. right <laughs> that's right so so that part is like the northeast um mm-hmm. and uh, i like it more to like maybe some of the plants stop at pennsylvania but i'm going to tell you those hardwood trees like the oaks and the hickories and the sycamores and um all these wonderful hardwood trees you would think about grow all the way to the gulf coast and uh all the way down to costa rica if you've ever been to costa rica you'll see a lot of the same trees And if you go into Mexico, you'll see a lot of the same trees. So the hardwood forest is, I'm going to say, not indigenous to what we think of as being just in the northeast or just being in the south. I mean, there are some tree differences. Um, For example, I know New Jersey had the great pine barrens and um, where there were nothing but the pines back in the day and. And Lower Alabama and Georgia, we had the Great Pine Forest. You know mm. where you know even into Louisiana, Mississippi, and Louisiana across that swath. And Alabama used to be the number one producer of turpentine in the nation.
0: Hmm, and because turpentine, yeah, comes from the the pines, <laughs> <I> which
2: <laughs> comes from the pines. If you don't know that, right? Um, because there was, because we had this giant natural pine forest in South Alabama. So, um, you know, so these trees are, um, until you get up into, I guess, the boreal kind of forest, where we have, you know, truly only conifers or maybe redwoods and conifers. Um, it's, it's amazing how these deciduous trees really go much further south than folks think mm. they do. Right. yeah Uh
0: where we are um we're starting to get into the more the northern hardwoods we have a lot of uh birches and uh, maples and beaches but they're starting to die out but i wonder how how far those go down too but it's it's really amazing how how adaptable you know the, the the that bio uh community is
2: yeah we have river birch and we do have some maples and in a cold winter, because um, I think you have to have to tap a maple tree at least two months of cold. I, I it, You might need three, but I here. people, if we get two months of really cold and the sap goes down, we're like, oh, yeah, let's go out and tap some maple. Let's nice. tap some hickory because hickory, oh, my God, hickory syrup is amazing Ooh. if you've never had tapped a hickory tree. um. So these were the kind of things that I grew up with doing because, you know, basically back in my day, uh, youth, we were just super poor and everybody did this. You had to forage. You had to live off the land. You had to have a garden. But, you know, these are the things that have come back Mm to that, you know, the foraging community is into. So like this winter, we haven't had two months of hard freezing cold. The sap did go down. But I don't think tapping is going to be very productive this year, uh, um, you know, with the hickories and the maples. And we don't have a lot of maples, but we do have some. And what we have is mostly red maple. Yeah. Um, you know, hickory is our primary uh, tapping tree here. Um, so, and there are lots of hickories. So, in uh, various different types and species but we just haven't had we had maybe let me say on new year's day excuse me new year's day it was 70 degrees here we had we had a really strange winter Mm. so it didn't get cold until about the middle of january Mm. um and what is this the in the middle of we've only had about a month of cold Mm -hmm. so um and i was out yesterday chickweed is coming up you know (laughs) the whole climate is so totally screwed yeah um you know everything is just so weird um you know plants are adapting but i'm having trouble
0: (laughs) (laughs) right I i was gonna say it's like you know maybe that gives us hope in 50 years if new york is like uh alabama um we can still tap maple trees sometimes but yeah or the hickories
2: will move north
0: (laughs) yeah so we we do usually ask uh our first question um that well what brought you to the plant path and you touched a little bit on that uh but you know what 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 brought you to the plant path
2: um well you know it was my family history and heritage and tradition my grandmother and this is on my daddy's side of the family not my mother's. Um, so on my daddy's side of the family, there was a long history of herbal midwives and um, an herbalist in general, um, male and or and or female. So my grandmother was herbalist, midwife, and uh, helped deliver a lot of babies. Helped take care of community because back in her day there were just no doctors here and then the town area got a doctor and then you had to go into town to get the doctor and then he had to come out and he had a horse and buggy this was her time period so it seems like that was a whole long long time ago like hundreds of years ago but you know Alabama kind of this deep south because of the Uh, economic devastation following the civil war and then the great depression you know the deep south uh, lagged behind the country in services and that they offered the population electricity wasn't here Um, nobody had electricity uh, when she was growing up it just wasn't even here nobody had natural gas it wasn't here and so we think about the northeast at this time it was quite Um, developed and you know people had water in their homes and electricity in their houses well that wasn't the case here so um everything was still in great poverty unless you were in a big city like atlanta georgia um um, for instance Mm -hmm. where there was money to have these kind of things so um the doctor here um initially went to the houses in a horse and buggy In her time period. Uh, And then he got a car. Um, But it's still like, even when I was a young girl, the doctors were all still making house calls. Um, There was just that time frame. So my family also for pocket money, for for winter hard cash, were wildcrafters. So I grew up wildcrafting. Started when I was about 10 in the woods, going with my family to wildcraft. Um, mostly ginseng, uh, pink root was another big one, Stylindia. Um, We basically gathered whatever the market might be at that time,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, whatever was going to sell. And um, then my grandmother, there was always a few herbs that she kept around. Um, she didn't dry a lot of herbs. Um, her, you know, she just would, she was of the... Um, she was, i um, say how to say this, um, had Native American heritage. And it was like, pretty much whatever you need is growing outside in the yard or the back door or just run out in the woods and get it. Um, and they might dry a few things to overwinter. Like ginseng was always harvested and dried. Um, <clears throat> golden seal that was around was usually harvested and dried. Um, just a few things. Um, but not a lot. Because it would be popping right back up for long um so mostly fresh stuff and simples she probably only knew seriously 10 15 20 herbs yeah. but she she knew how to use them and this is how i always talk yeah. um you learn how every single thing a plant can do and you don't need 150 plants what do you need 150 plants for if you have 20 that you are really experienced with and that can do everything. Yeah. All right. Um, So that was my early training as a simpler. We call that a simpler, Mm. which is uh, here, which is a little bit different uh, definition than um, simpler has become up in the Northeast with maybe the Susan weed infusion. So this is a different, this is, you know, here in the South, a simpler was someone who knew every single thing you can know about a plant and you can do 150 things with it because you, you know, everything the plant can do. And in what circumstance the plant can do it and how much, how long to cook it and
0: right. how
2: much a person needs to take. Right. So, so it was also, um, decoctions, no infusions, didn't really have alcohol, um, number one, it was still illegal, huh. um, right? Um, so you couldn't even get it unless somebody made something, and then that was
0: really expensive. Not,
2: yeah. Well, it was also really nasty. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, it was called a rot your gut liquor, um, and mm-hmm. it was just they just kind of made it for the money, and who knows what was in it. Yeah. Um, and they they weren't savvy, I mean, You know, they used the wrong a lot of times tubing, you can't use copper. I mean, there's certain lead, you can't use lead. So, you know, so there was this whole thing about old fashioned steels on my mom's side of the family. They were all bootleggers. So I know this crap, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, and they all ended up in the pen and going to jail too. I mean, all my great uncles, they were in and out of the penitentiary all the time because they were bootlegging. Um, so, um, we just didn't have alcohol everything was cooked and kind of like a more uh, traditional uh, i would say native approach um but also that was that kind of decoction is also traditional to all folk medicines to Scots Irish folk medicine you cooked it right you didn't infuse it you don't so infusions here were considered beverages and medicine, you cook the plant to get, get the deep medicine out because it's in there deep. And just infusing it for 10 or 15 minutes was not going to do that. Mm. Um, unless it was a really strong plant and you were beverage in it. Um, and, and it was like sassafras tea. Oh, well, let's have a cooling beverage. Let's infuse it. Are sumac berries, oh, yeah. uh, a cooling tea, let's infuse it. Um, they were considered beverages that kind of help relax you or cool you off, but not medicine at that mm-hmm. point. You still had to cook the sumac to get the medicine if you wanted kidney medicine. Or okay. you had to cook the sassafras root. You had to cook it if you wanted the medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um,
0: what about like leaves? Like, um, if things are more delicate, would you still boil them down that much? Yep. Okay.
2: Um, because even things you think are delicate aren't really, and also here, um, everything was like, is this native or did this come with the settlers? I mean, there was still this big kind of like difference made, um, with, with plants. So, um, you know, natively speaking, to the land, um, there weren't a lot of delicate plants. Mm. Everything was were roots and barks and heavy grasses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we think about chickweed, it's not native. Mm. Um, we think dandelion, it's not native. Mm. Uh, Plant the Rugal's plantain is native, and it can take some cooking. Mm. It's a tough. Um, we think about English plantain or narrow-leaf plantain. It's not native, um, so a lot of the plants that herbalists typically use were not even native,
1: mm.
2: right? Uh, now they're naturalized, right, <laughs> right, right. right. Um, and uh, chickweed is great medicine. It's a wonderful, also food, um, and it can take a lot more cooking than you think it can because. We would just throw it in, but it was also considered uh, settler medicine. Mm. And if you really wanted the deep medicine, let's go in the woods. Let's go to the trees. Let's go to the shrubs. Let's go to the plants that were native to this land, to this region. So that's how it's taught. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never, you know, I use chickweed. I use dandelion. um, And I use... uh, What's another kind of like common? Yellow dock. Yeah. Would be another one that came with the settlers.
0: Yarrow maybe.
2: Yarrow came with the settlers. Um, so uh, you know the other plantains came with the settlers. So those those were considered useful, um, and they certainly are, and they're certainly you know can do the job that you need doing. But those were not the first plants I was taught. Hmm. So
1: um, I'm wondering just to kind of define some terms, like how do you define a um, Southern folk practitioner or how do you define Southern folk herbalism? Well, Southern
2: folk medicine, um, other than Native American medicine, was the only regional uh, herbalism to develop and sustain in in the continental United States, mm-hmm. right, um, over a few hundred years, and changed, it grew, and it is a, I think, an infusion of a lot of different cultures and systems coming together just for survival, um, you know, I've obviously, immediately, you know, Native American plant use was um, was there because this is their land, their plants, they knew how to use it. Um, but the but Native Americans in the South, they took the initial brunt of a contact with Europeans and the devastation that went with that as far as um, disease and death. And you know, I've read estimates that uh, Native Americans in the Southeast, it was like 85% died, I've read 90, you know, I've read different methods, but I mean, not methods, percentages, but suffice to say, it almost wiped them out. And, you know, they had to figure out how to survive with just a few of them. And um, there was a lot of intermarrying with settlers just because, you know, who else is around? Um, that took place. And then there was also a lot of isolation, like we're going to go off and be our, you know, not have anything to do with this, these folks too. So, but Native American plant use for sure. Um, Spanish. So the South was initially settled by the Spanish, Mm -hmm. you know, they're the ones that came through. Um, And so, you know, like a hundred years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, the Spanish are bringing in people, bringing in horses, bringing in pigs, um, bringing in people um, to, you know, go across the southeast. So they brought their medicine with them, which was the humoral system. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hum- and the humoral system are. It's also called Greek medicine our gate, the medicine of Galen was the number one uh, kind of mainstream medicine in Europe at this time period was the the humoral system, right? Um, And so they brought that with them, And this began to kind of infuse with uh, Native American practices and plant use, Hmm.
0: Um,
2: because pretty soon they're running out of whatever plants they brought with them. But immediately they start sending plants back to Spain. Um, And some of my best references for that early plant exchange are in Spanish documents because they were really good document keepers um, about plants they're immediately like sending back uh, to make money on because that was the first thing. They can't find gold. Well, oh my God, here's a cayenne pepper. Yeah, Um, exactly. Right? And sassafras, um, I guess. Um, and and all these plants, they began, became plants of commerce mm. before the pilgrims even came to the Northeast. This is before.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Right? Um, so we have the Spanish influence. And then, of course, we have um, African influence. Um, and not so much on plants because they did were not, a, you know, they didn't bring a lot of plants with them. How could, how could they, right? Um, you know, there's some rep- written reports of them putting seeds in their hair to bring, um, you know, that was licorice. Hmm. Um, but, you know, there's also deb- debate of, that was also a beauty thing to, to make your hair smell good. Hmm. So, Mostly, what came with the Africans was a spiritual framework on how on health hmm. um, that got incorporated, and it's like an amazing spiritual framework. Um, there's also um, the uh, um, okay. let me see. <sighs> The foods that came with them. I'm sorry, I got distracted a minute. Kind of envisioning licorice smelling hair. Don't you know <laughs> that would smell wonderful? Yeah. Um, yeah. Wouldn't that be great?
0: Yeah.
2: Um. <laughs> so, um, but they brought a lot of foods that ended up coming into the South, um, like peas and various peas, and you know, of rice, obviously. Um, but their spiritual framework on how to use plants and this gets all kind of incorporated into the effusion. And I'm saying infusion because everybody is just trying to live, trying to survive. This is a yeah. survival issue. Um, and then the kind of last overlay uh, on this, of course, are uh, an overlay that began about the same time as um, the Africans did. Because th- so, the African influence and the Scots-Irish, the or especially the Irish influence all came about at the same time. So all that kind of got infused. So um, I really kind of see that, you know, Southern folk medicine is this infusion uh, of all these different cultures that we can all make a claim to, you know, we're, you know, all this ancestry is all part of um, making it a, a sustainable, long-term, viable folk medicine when a lot of other, you know, no other folk medicine developed. And there's a lot of historical reasons, the Southwest isolated, um, you know, civil war, the great depression, reconstruction, you know, there's all these historical aspects that um, kept the area in poverty and, helped maintain the concept of Southern folk medicine. And even now, you know, you run across families uh, where, oh, yeah, we've always used yellow root. Oh, my granddaddy taught me how to use yellow root or my, you know, or my grandmother, I mean, used um, sycamore bark or, you know, whatever the plant might be uh, that have maintained you know, within the families that just kind of got passed on, even though the bigger concepts or the larger concepts of Southern folk medicine, um, kind of didn't, Mm. except, you know, my family did, um, because my, because my grandmother learned from her mother who learned from her mother. Um, so on my dad's side of the family, we can trace a, an herbalist back to the Civil War, and, and kind of like before that, records or because of the Civil War, a lot of records got lost mm-hmm. um, and destroyed. Um, but so that's yeah, deep lineage
0: there.
2: You wrong. Long answer to your question: it was my family's business, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I started when I was 10.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. I I think I heard on another podcast where you, you said how you went to a conference or something and everyone was talking about Chinese medicine, but, uh, and they said like, there's no, there's no American herbalism. And you're like, well, you know, I've always been practicing that. There is.
2: Right. There is like, who, who, have you forgot this whole part of the country um, where they're the southern folk medicine maintained? And then about an hour from me, um, up in the north um, mountains at the end of the Appalachians, lived Tommy Bass. Mm. And,
1: cool. Right? I did ask
2: you about him. Yeah, so um, Tommy Bass was also somebody I studied with and worked with for quite a number of years. And uh, he also practiced this infusion of Southern folk medicine. And he started when he was seven. Now I want to back up and say that he is of English descent and bass is an English name and his grandparents and his dad and his mom were all English folk herbalist. Hmm. So when they immigrated to this country, they brought English folk medicine with them. Um, And Bass's salve became really famous in our area because it was this kind of combination of only native plants, um, but based on English folk medicine concepts. Mm. And I would dare say his mother, um, because of kind of the isolation of where they lived up in the mountains um, was I would truly dare to say that her lineage was probably more true or as true English folk medicine um, as you would find anywhere in England at this mm-hmm. day, because it wasn't diluted, right? Mm-hmm. They immigrated with a full system that they brought with them. And because of isolation and poverty, it didn't change. Yeah. Right. So it maintained that undiluted but tommy started working for aunt molly kirby he was a black herbalist midwife at the foot of the mountain he lived on, him and his family lived on top of the mountain she lived at the foot of the mountain down by the river mm. um and she start started training him when he was seven mm.
1: sure.
2: now because she because no nobody in her community wanted to learn mm. And Tommy was a little white boy and he wanted to learn because he was growing up with that English tradition. Right. Mm -hmm. So she, she, um, started teaching him. Um, she just couldn't get up and down the mountains together, the plants anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so she started teaching him together for her and what they were used for. So, So he studied, we would say studied back then. they, that concept of study was more like an apprenticeship. I'm like a really true apprenticeship.
0: Yeah. Even studying really.
1: So yeah. Not like doing and gathering and and living it rather than a two week apprenticeship with a modern herbalist
2: right not this is where this is what you did right from sun up to sound down and um you did what you were told and if you gathered the wrong plant well then back up the mountain you had to go Mm -hmm. right and dodge the snakes and Mm. get it yeah um right so um anyway he started staying with her And he did until she passed on. Now he never he never was part of delivery. That was considered women's. So he never did any, um, like labor and delivery. You know, because she was a midwife, and there's no telling how many babies she delivered over her lifetime. Um, But it was considered no. You know, you're a man. You can't do this. You can't even be present. So, but she did teach him how to use um, the herbs that could help keep a healthy pregnancy or help somebody get pregnant. But when it came down to um, the actual event, he was not allowed to be around. And that's, you know, was the, what's the word I'm looking for? Modesty um, and the culture of that time period. Um, So he, he never participated in that. And so he studied with her until she just couldn't do it anymore. And then, by that, and then by that time, he was quite knowledgeable and was beginning to practice on his own. You know, he was like a teenager. Hmm. So he started actually practicing um, now when we would think somebody is still in high school.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. <laughs> um, but he was considered a grown man then. Uh, um, uh, that was the time period. You're, uh, you're uh, 17 years old, 18 years old. You are grown. You make your own living. You're your own person. Um, so he did. And he started uh, practicing herbalism. People started coming to see him because she had passed on. He also worked in the cotton fields. Now, everybody did. I did. My whole family did. When it was cotton season for that time, period, you worked in the fields. Um, and my grandfather, on my mom's side, was a sharecropper. We all had to work the fields. Everybody did. Um, and But he also fur-trapped. He was a hunter and fur-trapper um, and had a license to fur-trap. So in the state of Alabama... In order to gather wild plants legally from the woods, you have to have a fur trapping license. Mm -hmm. huh Um, Except for ginseng. And ginseng has its own license.
0: Right. Right.
2: But it it is there. But, you know, because of the um, touchy state of ginseng population. But um, you have to have a fur trapping license. And even the ginseng license is part of the fur trapping community and license, licensing. So Tommy was a fur trapper and a plant digger, but it all came under the same license. And then that allowed you to resell the plants Mm. to, um, you know, companies that bought them, right? So anybody can gather a plant for their own use and the government can't tell you what Together or not, gather on your own land. If you have ginseng on your land, they can't tell you what to do, right? But if you're gathering from other places, um, then you have to have this license. And so Tommy did. And so that's how he made his living. Plus, he saw people.
1: Hmm.
2: So, um, So that was Tommy. And so I was privileged to get to study with him too. Wow.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah,
2: amazing. that's
0: really cool. So uh, who were some of your other teachers and mentors?
2: Um, Those were two were my two main ones. My dad, after my grandmother died, my dad took me out a lot. But my dad, he was never um, he was a great plant identifier, but he only ever used two or three plants Mm -hmm. for um, he was a super simpler. Mm -hmm. Um, So ginseng to him could do anything. (laughs) See, I'm serious. I'm serious. You cook this much ginseng. You decoct this much ginseng for this health issue.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So you you would use different amounts for different and different times boiling for different issues?
2: That's right. Okay. And that's true of any plant that you might be simpling. What you might want to use yellow dock for. We'll use yellow dock because a lot of people are familiar with it. Um, if I went natively, I might say prickly ash, like a true prickly ash, Um, not the Aurelia, but the Xanthosylum, right? Uh, How long are you going to cook this to get what you need out of it, right? And how much is too much? Uh, Wild jam, perfect example. Wild jam, which still grows quite wild here and doesn't look It's not missing, right? I know wild yam in other parts of the country uh, are on the either endangered or at watch list. But if there's a bit of woods where I live, there's some wild yam growing in it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So wild yam cannot be used fresh. It is. uh, What's the word? damaging to the mucous membrane tissues it, if you use it fresh it will rip your mucous membrane tissues it will kill you simply because it will rip out your mucous membrane tissues from your mouth to your butthole oh. all the way down yeah it has to dry um and the old um, folks said it had to dry and age six months so okay. now and you know like uh artificial environments they can dry it out a whole lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Um all right are y'all getting any background noise?
0: No
2: uh, okay good. No? Yes?
0: Maybe oh yeah it's fine. Yeah. I, there's not not really it's much. Not distracting. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um so it um it will rip that out like really bad. So it has to dry and age at least six months. So then after it's really dry um, you go to cook it up. And when you first bring the water to the boil and the wild yam starts releasing, it is this beautiful bright red color. I mean, it's gorgeous. Hmm. And it smells like butterscotch. Mm-hmm. It smells like you're cooking a dessert in your kitchen. <laughs> so seriously, it is wonderful. So you turn if you turn the water off then and have a sip, when it's like this pink red and smells like butterscotch, it absolutely is the most bitter thing you've ever put in your mouth. <laughs> the smells
0: smell, like but actually, yeah,
2: it, it's more bitter than ginseng. Wow. it's Oh, yeah. It's more bitter than ginseng. It's more bitter. I've never had anything more bitter. Wormwood? More bitter. It's wow. a different kind. It's a different kind of bitter than what wormwood because wormwood has this oily bitterness to it uh-huh. that kind of clings to the back of your tongue.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> right. Um, but um, wild yam, it doesn't have that oiliness. It doesn't cling. It immediately goes down. It immediately hits your bitter taste buds, and you have swallowed it before you know it. Mm. And then it just feels like it's bitter all the way down into your gut. It feels like everything in your everything in your digestive tract is getting bittered in that moment. And you can really feel it. Um, the most bitter thing. Now, if you keep cooking it a little bit longer, as the longer you cook it, the more burgundy it gets.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the more bitter it gets. You thought it was bitter before? (laughs) (laughs) Not. And from wild jam, the first birth control pills were made. It was, yeah. From wild jam, the first uh, cortisone was made. It is the most hormonally active plant in the forest the most hormonally active traditionally back when if you cooked it long enough you had birth control Uh but you have to cook it a certain way which i am not going to share because i don't want somebody trying it and not doing it right and going oh my god i'm pregnant yeah Um, right but (laughs) but it is super phytoestrogenic um, from that point of view, but studies have shown that it also affects progesterone receptors. So, Mm -hmm. and it's a natural steroid. So here we have a plant, the most hormonally active plant in the forest um, that the, and one of the most researched plants (laughs) in the forest. Uh, especially back in the early uh, 1950s, 60s, 70s, because pharmaceutically, they were making things out of it. And people kind of have forgotten how to use it. Yeah. In the herbal community. How do you use it in the herbal community? Who uses it in the herbal community?
0: Well, they probably just they, make a tincture anyway.
2: They probably make a tincture. That's exactly right. And you're not getting the full benefit of the plant and hopefully they are still making the tincture from the dried plant
0: uh-huh.
2: as you should not, don't ever, ever, ever use the fresh root.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's-
2: tincture or any other way. So I wanted to put that out there that, that as a, a traditional herbalist, we had to know this kind of stuff.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Right. We had to know what was safe, or it's not safe, how to process it in the kitchen to make it safe. If it wasn't, how long do you dry this? So, you know, now you just kind of order from your favorite company and it comes dried. Um, Or if somebody, you might know, you might forage, or you might know somebody that does forage is kind of a part-time job. But there's a lot of this information that has gotten lost. Kind of, if you see what I'm saying? Yeah, mm. yeah,
0: for sure. And because you, you have to have so much experience with the the plants and with decocting them to know, you know, when, like, j- j- even w- just with cooking, you know, it takes a while to like get your taste and your eye. So, you know, when something's done, when it needs a little bit of this, a little bit of that, mm. but right. you have to have that like physical experience, like uh, from having done it and tasted it and, and looked at it and seen how it is at each different stage. Uh, yeah,
2: to do it, and nobody—I mean, that was the tradition here. Southern herbalists still do this, and you know, still teach it. Um, but it's—it's it's not taught or utilized in the same way in the broader herbal community. And I'm not saying people don't make infusions or decoctions because obviously they do but I feel like there's this gap of information that has been left out simply because I don't think most people know it.
0: Yeah. And all the right? nuances. To- yeah. The
2: nuances, uh, which these nuances can make a huge, huge difference and, mm. uh, having the body heal. Right. Yeah. So when you cook wild dam like this, you only need one sip.
0: Wow. Uh, <laughs>
2: seriously. Yeah, seriously. It is. It is medicine on your tongue and your body knows it. Mm -hmm. Um, If you cook it up in this certain way, now now you can preserve it in alcohol if you want. So Uh the tradition here uh, was, as I said earlier, decoctions, um, because that was the native, that was the folk medicine, that was European folk medicine, that was to some extent your. Um, European humoral system, although they already had alcohol tinctures coming in, but it was preserving it in alcohol after it was cooked, was this whole other thing, right? This is how you could make it last if you needed to, but first you had to get the medicine out. Right. And for a lot of plants, that was a decoction of some sort. Now that's tradition. Now we know medicine makers, Um, herbal manufacturers, they really investigated extraction methods in ways that my ancestors never could, or my teachers never did, you know, because they were teaching what they had been taught, and this was the way it had been done, so um, um, I was having this conversation with David Winston not too long ago, and I was saying, you know, traditionally, American ginseng is a decoction. Uh You cook it up. You don't take an alcohol extract. I mean, what's missing in the alcohol extract Uh that you're not getting? So here we um, always decoct it. Now, if we want to save it, now we're going to do, we're going to add some alcohol to it or, or, or even do a double extraction. So we're getting all the water soluble and then the alcohol soluble. Um, right. and, and that was what David was saying, you know, you, you still have to have enough water in your, um, uh, alcohol extraction to pull out the water soluble bits that are so important. So truly a lot of native plants, decocting is getting the medicine because there's all this water soluble stuff, yeah. phytochemicals, I'm saying stuff. Folks, photochemicals, <laughs> um, right? That need the water, um, as opposed to some, um, especially fat-based ones that need the alcohol. So, it is kind of knowing this from a traditional point of view um, expands your medicine, the strength of your herbal medicine, and and then what you do with it, mm. right? So anytime
1: you make a, a tincture, might it be a good idea instead of if you're going to add water to your
2: tincture, adding a decoction or infusion? It depends. Yeah, again, depends on the plant. Like sure. lobelia, it needs a double extraction. Oh. Yeah, but with vinegar.
0: Huh. Uh-huh.
2: So if you want to get all the good stuff out of lobelia, which, you know, grows wild. It's one of the few kind of grassy plants that's native uh, here. Um, You know, it was, the best is a vinegar, vinegar, it's a double extraction, vinegar, and then alcohol, or alcohol, yeah, right, Um, and vinegar extractions um, have their place, um, but they don't really get everything, so you have to, are all plants or not, you can't extract the usefulness from every plant with vinegar. Right, right. Right, Uh, but lobelia is one that you can Mm. so it's like knowing and understanding the plants on all different levels um and traditionally people figured most of this out hundreds of years ago
0: yeah
2: right, if not right? longer yeah if not longer That's and fun. i'm not and i'm not saying new information isn't useful i i cruise scientific papers all the time because it is yeah. Um, but let's not forget those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of usefulness and honing based on this empirical information of practice, practice, practice that's out there. Um, let's not forget that. And the rush to only look at what's on PubMed or only look at the latest paper or only say, oh, but there's no literature to back this up. Um, Hey, let's go back 100 and kind of 50, 200 years. Let's look at, you know, let's look at traditional literature Along with this, let's not be kind of exclusively one way or the other. Again, maybe it's my background of infusion, but let's infuse both. And um, scientific and traditional, but but what I'm seeing in the herbal community is people. This is a broader herbal community um, that people are using fewer and fewer plants um, because they're not tested. Uh um or they haven't been studied um and um they're and they're still not learning a lot of uses for those plants they're still only looking at the uses of the plants that have been studied
0: right it seems right it's like I, i feel like a lot of times the the herbal community these days is just trying to be doctors or something like to it's like they're looking for approval from the scientific community. And so they're only doing things that are approved by the scientific community.
2: Exactly, like exactly. This
0: rich heritage of how like other ways of knowing, like experiential ways of knowing.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I think the internet also has a lot to do with that. If, uh-huh. if you Google, um, I don't know, let's say herbs for arthritis, you're gonna get on 50 different websites um, you're gonna get the same ten herbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: man. Google right? stuff is just. I, I, it's like it doesn't even help. I, I, like anymore, <laughs> these days it's much better to have a library, like where you can actually look up in a book because they, they, right. they all just like copy each other's top ten herbs for this or top ten. Yes. Herbs
2: just yes. Copy
0: and copying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not even necessarily right. It's like the-
2: exactly. Exactly. So I feel like this Google herbalism
0: yeah. is
2: really damaging the whole concept of herbalism in the broader context. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right, here's, oh, you know, and whatever the latest kind of researched herb is, is the one that gets on every single website. Right. Right. Um, so for for a while it was boswellian Um, black seed oil is the one out it's on every website now and I love black seed oil and it's super useful Um, but it's just like this same information over and over and over again Mm -hmm. and even some of the the um, newer herb books I pick up it's still, the same herbs that they got on Google, right? <laughs> uh, that somebody has made a book out of now. Um, for the beginning herb list. here's right. St. John's wort, chickweed, you know, uh, yeah. this ashwagandha, just the same herbs over and over and over. And they're, I'm not despairing the herbs, they're, they're wonderful herbs, but this information is. A limited use of the plant because it's not given all the uses of the plant. Um, you know, really cow towing to research, dismissing tradition. You um, know, and, and I just think it's damaging the whole concept and profession of herbalism uh, across actually, you know, parts of Europe and the United States. So, Phyllis, do you have any favorite herb books? Uh yes <laughs> um i uh i well, like a, a couple i'm sorry well you've written a couple too I, i've written some um but i'm gonna exclude those okay um, <laughs> <laughs> i uh do uh i like dr christopher's or book uh, anybody read that dr christopher no. dr christopher no. um i have not so okay. On the list. Let me write that out. Dr.
0: Christopher.
2: <laughs> all right, Dr. Christopher's um, School of Natural Healing. Okay. Uh, and he was uh, a traditional naturopath. Uh, so he called himself Dr. Mm-hmm. He was one of the best herbalists. So, so here again, he was practicing during a time period um, using native, mostly all native plants um huge huge um, client client basis um out in parts of the southwest in in that area california when the rest of the country was going or when part of the herbal renaissance saying there were no um nobody was practicing herbalism practicing herbalism Dr. Christopher taught, he was one of Rosemary's Glad Stars teachers, if I'm not mistaken. But I know Michael Tierra studied with him. I know, you know, he was actually the teacher of a lot of people uh, who we think as herbal elders now.
0: Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Michael Moore, did he?
2: I don't know about Michael Moore. Um, I don't know. That's but they were kind of out in the same area. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm not going to say no, but I'm not going to say yes, because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But um, so just opening his book, because I'm sitting right in front of part of my bookcase right now, you know, um, he, he was uh, the infusion. So um, the alternative herbs, chapter two, he does plantain, red clover, poke root. Burdock, Chaparral, Oregon Grape, Blue Flag, Sassafras, Sarsaparilla, Echinacea, Purple Loose strife, Yellow Dock, and Garlic. Mm. Now, he's doing all these from a clinical point of view from the, from the, I guess, around 1930. I think he stopped practicing somewhere in
0: 1970.
2: Okay. Um, and how to use them? in a practice with stories and in formulas. Um yeah.
0: what to use
2: them with, where they grow. Yeah. All right. And this is a book that um you know a lot of people don't even have on their library shelves. And he was such a teacher to all these people that started the herbal renaissance.
0: Yeah. One of those those links between you know the old like eclectics and back in the day when you know a lot of doctors knew herbalism. To right through that that period where people were put put in jail for practicing herbalism
2: well and he was put in jail several times really wow um, uh, one of his stories was he would leave in the morning um and so to gather his herbs a lot of the times he um he functioned as a gardener and weeded people's yard gardens.
0: <laughs> i guess this so, is before glyphosate
2: uh. yeah totally Um, so they had to have, you know, gardeners to do the weeding. And one of the stories that is in his book is that he would leave in the morning and he would tell his wife, he said, he's, he would say, you know, if I'm not in jail, I'll be home for supper. He was, he was in jail that many times, um, where they would try to get him for practicing medicine without a license. Um, And he was that popular and that successful with his clients. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, he would,
2: he, yes. Um, You know, so he goes through, um, he kind of mixes um, what settler herbs, you know, the herbs that came from Europe with native herbs and native herbs from both the Appalachians and the Southwest. So He just mixed them kind of all together in his practice, Um, but he had a practice and he has amazing formulas and these formulas that he used um, and came up with are formulas that a lot of uh, companies now have hijacked and are selling Mm. like, yeah because they were so good so um there his son has dr christopher's formulas that you can Mm. buy in capsules or tinctures um but also i want to say nature's way or you know so his formulas are so useful that people got them and companies got them and started selling them Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's a, a formula for cough syrup, just uh, opened to a page, um, comfrey root. Now we're going to go comfrey for a cough formula for a Nervine formula, huh. um, but he, he used it. Days. it. No, you wouldn't use it these days, but his formula is comfrey root, Turkey, rhubarb,
0: huh.
2: um, spikenard, mm-hmm. skunk cabbage, yeah. whore hound, and yellow docks. Hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he's using all these plants. You just go out and find someplace.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Um, because
0: Find skunk cabbage in the southwest,
2: though. <laughs> Maybe no, not. but like I say, he, you know, he would order plants from yeah. other areas, herbs from other areas. Um, so, I also think that uh, that when sometimes herbalist. Um, or study with someone and then they grow up and they want to make their name for themselves they they don't acknowledge their teachers the way they should Mm -hmm. right
0: and i I always try to do is ask people who their teachers were because i think that's always very important yeah come from and yeah
2: right i do too um so i always mention like tommy bass and and my grandmother because those were my and my dad, my principal teachers, but I'm in an unusual situation where I'm just here. <laughs> I still live in the same town I was born in, right?
0: Yeah. It's um, amazing. That's cool.
2: Um, but, you know, Dr. Christopher, all these herbalists came from all over the United States to study with him. Almost never hear anybody acknowledge that. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, that is a bummer.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I
0: haven't heard of him, and I mean, he's uh, you know, I've got we got a decent amount of books on herbalism, but we don't have that book. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with yeah. us.
2: Yeah, you're <laughs> welcome. Yeah. Um, you know, so there there are a quite a number, you know, maybe a handful of herbalist from that time period that I think don't get acknowledged as much and and I've often wondered one of the reasons I've wondered that this might be true um, um, is because they were had this really strong Christian base they were coming from um, which most of their students did not so I've wondered if that kind of Influence the information getting carried on in some way, or the acknowledgement in some way. But I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Mm. Um, yeah. Another
1: those, herbal teacher that was a teacher of the teachers is William LaSasseer. Am I saying that? Right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Saucier is he, how, right.
1: you also learned about him on the podcast interviewing Dina Falconi, who's an herbalist from New York, and um, it was just interesting that he influenced so many of the teachers that have influenced me, but I hadn't heard about him. And now this. Other- oh, my
2: God. Yeah. So we yeah. got to make sure
1: we keep, you know, giving props to the teachers. The yeah.
2: Language. And because he came up with that whole triune system. Yeah. That air almost, you know, that's being taught all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. So, yeah. Um, oh, Awesome. Yeah. He was a big teacher of a lot of the teachers up in the Northeast. Another kind of like um person who I think has tried to maintain some traditional information in the writing is Matthew Wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. and his especially his Earthwise Herbal series where he does New World Plants and Old World Plants.
0: Yeah. That's um such a classic.
2: It is. Um, but I mean, that was kind of like one of the purposes there. Right. um, right. Is to let's not forget how to traditionally use these plants, et cetera, et cetera. So um, um, I like him. And um, also, there is, let me see, a book called a reference guide to medicinal plants by the university of north carolina and it's it's um where they came and researched tommy bass and how he uses his plants if
0: you'd like to check out part two go on over to patreon.com plantcunning plant cunning